Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Well, it has been a, a harrowing week for, for this Yeti. We got an evacuation notice for the Florida hurricane, fled inland for a few days, made the break um, between when I-75 was shut down, got back into town after staying safe in a hotel, and I can finally say I'm back home with restored power, and I'm back to getting to talk comic books with people, which is amazing. So catching back up to life, I'm happy to introduce my guest, Will Morris, today, um, who has a great new fantasy adventure coming out with Image Comics called Gospel. Thanks for joining me today, Will. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really, I say lovely to be here. I'm in Leeds, uh, <laughs> so nowhere different to normal, but uh, I really feel like I should be interviewing you and <laughs> just getting oh, all no. of that experience out of, uh, out of what must have been a horrific time. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you and everyone else checking in on me and the family to make sure we're okay through all of it. Um, yeah, it's been a week. So, Oh, yeah. All right, so Gospel. The, the name actually brings quite a bit to mind. Um, so why don't you outline the, the basic plot for everyone to kind of whet their appetite, and then we can kind of jump into particulars. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Gospel, that's the name kind of settled um, out of no way, I think, you know, sometimes you kind of be digging around for like, what's the right thing to title this book? Mm -hmm. And gospel just felt really right uh, in terms of um, the setting, which is uh, in, in kind of the English Reformation or during the English Reformation, but also this kind of phrase about gospel truth and truth in stories is, is right at the heart of what this um, book is all about. Uh, and so... Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a, a, a kind of a wee um, line that I've put together, which sums it up quite nicely. It's that when opportunity refuses to knock, the devil comes knocking instead. And so the story is all about Matilde, who's a, a young hero. Uh, usually you wouldn't have seen the, the little wiggly air quotes there, uh, um, but um, who's a hero who really wants to be celebrated in in story and song you know she wants her local bard to be to be trumpeting her daring do and and all these incredible achievements she's made but as you might expect she's finding that you know dragons wicked sorcerers uh i yeah, you know kind of demons these things just aren't falling into her lap so she's in a situation where she's started to create events that she hopes with the right nurturing and the right talented storyteller, these events can kind of gather steam and with additional tellings, they can evolve into these incredible stories of daring do that will establish her in, you know, the hearts and minds of, of her community. And she really thinks that's what, you know, being a hero is all about is just like an inspirational figure through incredible actions rather than, necessarily through charity or just being a good part of that community um and what she doesn't realize is that the actions that she's participating in are going to trigger what's a pretty cataclysmic event for the community in which she lives um and and then herself and pitt who's um a fellow apprentice of hers are then propelled into a quest where they face a whole host of ho uh, foes uh, in 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 order to save their community, and also you know they're going to face some of their worst instincts along the way in a, in that in that journey. So. Yeah, and you had shared with me that the inspiration behind the story were these road trips around Cornwall and in, in Southwest England. Did you kind of start that as a child? Was you know, or was local folk folklore more of an of an adult interest for you? I mean, I guess we all we have such a luxury of a such a rich sort of history and just rich folk tales that just get passed down um, from person to person, and you'll hear them like weave their way into fairy tales and and everything else. Um, but definitely, I I was doing a job which was excruciatingly boring, which was basically touring around supermarkets and making sure uh, the the beer <laughs> for the company I was working at was looking. I don't know that all the labels were perfectly forward facing on the shelves. Sure. Um, but it took me around Devon and Cornwall and Devon and Cornwall. I don't, have you ever been down mm -hmm. there yourself? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, what was your experience? Um, most of my experience, unfortunately. Um, so the background on me is I spent like, like 15 years um, in an entertainment business working 
primarily for like rock and rap bands. So unfortunately, most of my experience of these places is either getting out of the arena or the theater for five minutes to go find someplace nice to eat, which in England is actually curry. That's what I was always looking for. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, But I I haven't gotten to spend as much time as as I would would love to, uh, to spend more time there. It's a beautiful area. Yeah, I guess you don't find too many um, traditional storytellers lurking out the back back end of a, a stadium or wherever else your your bands are performing. So, so yeah. But I I was going around. I was just driving around an awful lot. And in in, in that part of the world, you still have quite a lot of these kind of um, small press, but that local historians or local people that wanted to capture those stories would, you know, just capture them all in this. Um, very slight volume and you read through them and the stories are just loaded with wild ideas and and just incredible visual um, details but I think because you they might be passed down through generation and generation and and they've um, been sort of every different storyteller might have had their different perspective on what mm-hmm. was important in the story that slowly it morphs and evolves and by the time you read it written down in one of these books, you kind of wonder what purpose did this serve? You know, who was this for and what did it, what did it teach the community? I mean, entertaining for sure, but a lot of these things would have been, I guess, little nuggets of, um, of, of like coded social guidance for how to conduct yourself and how to be part of a good community. And, and so a lot of that felt lost. So I was kind of touring around and these stories are incredible. Um, but I wanted to see, you know, could I find a, a story that would add in a layer of context that was relevant to today and some of the stresses and strains and anxieties that we all kind of live with? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I know we're an ocean apart, but you know that that local folklore resonates anywhere you are, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the the southeast, where I'm from, one of my favorites was um, a, an entity called Needlefinger who would go around at night and had these, you know, really long talon-like fingers that they would use to suck the liver out of, uh, out of, out of people. And so this was a way of explaining liver disease in a, in a time before modern medicine. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and communities often would, would pride themselves on their boogeyman. Right. So, and, and this is, at least loosely based on a tale from from Dartmoor surrounding a devil in a small church. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it was really interesting because my because I've been working on this book for a while, or at least the idea has been rolling around in my head for a while. Then uh, I've almost kind of it's almost become fable itself in my mind how this mm-hmm. how this story ever arose. And my my parents just happened to be visiting, and I was talking about a holiday where we went down into Devon. And I suddenly realized that that holiday was the first time I'd, I'd come across this story of um, Brentor and the Church of St. Michael uh, de Roop, which is this incredible weather-beaten church on the very top of a hill. It's the most inhospitable church you could possibly imagine. And I think there's some quote from the, um, the minister or the priest there that, you know, he wanted his parishioners to suffer en route to the top of that that hill and into that church to kind of I guess get a sense of you know Christ's suffering and and mm-hmm. all the rest of it um but there's this great story attached to it whereby the devil was going up uh maybe a bit disgruntled I'm not sure if it was one of his favorite fiddling points or or whatever else um great views across across sort of Devon so perhaps you know it's good for sort of marking up or marking down the sins of the communities around, but but any which way, he wasn't that happy about a church being built there. So he was going up, dismantling it night by night, and then uh, on this particular night, um, the the community pleaded with St Michael, and he he was uh, good enough to head up there. And as the devil approached, he was hurling rocks down at the devil in order to sort of stop him from getting up there. And I think it landed on his foot. Sounds pretty miserable experience having a rock descend on your on your foot. So um, that was enough to scare him off. But I guess in a similar way to how maybe in, you know the oral tradition works and a story gets passed from one person to another and changes that just kind of tiny little nugget 
became something I was sort of fascinated in and then felt it just expand and let see how that blends with some of the maybe qualities I find interesting in in people's behavior and then kind of the characters almost evolved around that okay and you got it greenlit at a, a thought bubble yes yeah have you been to thought bubble i have not i've heard wonderful things from people about like how much they should go actually um the matt Leggetti, the the head yeti um you know will will say thought bubble was one of the the most um profound experiences he's ever had so, wow i'd yeah. love to know what what moved him to those words I'll have to pick his brain about that sometime. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I won't get too sidetracked, but yeah, if, if you can get the chance to go to Thought Bubble, it's a really brilliant experience just because there's no, there's no sense of like a hierarchy within the world of comics that are presented there. And everyone feels represented and everyone feels equally important to the state of UK comics at, at that show. Um, so, you know, you can have folks next to like the shining lights of, of kind of like the Marvel and DC worlds who are, who are just, you know, turning out, um, and, and, you know, working on their own kind of mini comics and, and just finding, finding their audience because it's such a kind of open-minded crowd to turn up. Um, but anyway, I probably should stop working in the kind of promotional department for Thought Bubble and, um, just kind of return to your question, which was. Um, yeah, I was very, very lucky that uh, Eric Stevenson was was running portfolio reviews at okay. Bubble when I was when I was there, and I, um, yeah, I'd, I'd 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 had a portfolio together, and it had various bits and pieces. Some things I think I had maybe done with, um, maybe done with. Vertigo. I did a, like a, a, a short piece for one of their anthologies, and then some of my older work, um, a book called The Silver Darlings, for instance, and then just two pages I slotted in, which were the most primordial version you can possibly imagine of this of this story I'm now working on. And and he was really really generous with his feedback on the work, and actually, you know, some of the stuff that I thought just wouldn't be of interest to him, he was. He was really interested in that, some of the ink wash stuff that I'd worked on previously, which is kind of like a much rawer art style. Um, but he 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 liked those two pages and just said, did you send, you know, a, a synopsis my way? So I then kind of furiously got to work on kind of actually hashing out the story. <laughs> oh, I got to do this now. Yeah, for sure. Well, did you do that little dance uh, when it finally hit you? Like, oh shit, I've got an image comic book coming out, right? Yeah, honestly, I I couldn't believe it. I felt, I feel, I mean, I feel like the whole, all, all of the comics work I've done, every part of it, you feel super blessed to be able to be doing anything at all, and and to be making comics and to be finding an audience like Image. I mean, you know, I I was growing up when Image were really hitting big. Uh, that kind of very first wave of creators, because you know, I'd I'd been dead into Todd McFarlane and like when you know on his Spider Man runs and those sorts of things as as quite a young person. So the idea of working for Image, just the idea of having a single issue floppy comic that is my own work with that Image branding on it, it's just phenomenal. Um, and it's yeah, taken a fair while to get to the point where that will actually happen as opposed to it just being like this, this wonderful idea. Yeah. I, I don't think people quite realize from inception of, okay, yes, we're doing this project to getting it on shelves takes quite a long time. Yeah, it sure does. Especially when you're, I guess when you're working on every component yourself and, and for me, um, that meant learning a lot uh, because I have, you know, I've I've done most of the duties on this book. Um, I'm really fortunate to have the um, producing the covers mm-hmm. for Gospel, and uh, and Holly McKend as well was was incredible in assisting me with like uh, you know the flatting and, and assisting on the colours as well. So that was 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 fantastic. But otherwise, I I had to learn how to colour digitally. I had to learn how to letter uh, and 
a whole other bunch of things because I didn't used to do <laughs> brush inking as well. So I'd put mm-hmm. these pages together, which kind of set the tone, which was just me playing with brush inking. And then and then I had to go on a crash course <laughs> learning all these things to make sure I could really bring it to life in the in the book. Oh, wow. Well, talk to me about that process then of, of kind of maturing as a creator over the course of time that till this project, you know, was finally realized. You said influences have, have, you know, changed, you know, and, and your artistic style has certainly kind of evolved, which I imagine has led to any number of revisions. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I've tried to try to kind of rein that in because you could spend your life just revisiting mm-hmm. panel, you know, get to the end of a sequence and then you've seen your style develop and and you kind of think, dang, that that first panel is now a bit squint. I mean, that eye is too far up the forehead and whatever else. And and you could just you could just internally go in cycles, just kind of completing and revisiting. So you have to kind of restrain yourself a little bit. Um but yeah, I mean, um my very first book, The Silver Darlings, which was a, a story about sort of herring fishing in on on the east coast of Scotland. Um that was all produced uh, with just washes of ink and was very much inspired by an Italian artist called Gippy. I don't know if you've come across. I have Gippy. not. Mm. If you could look out note, notes for a war story, it's an extraordinary book. Um, okay. And I think he, he uh, discovering a lot of European artists like Christophe Blanc and the like was something that really got me excited again about comics after a, a, a wee while just just because I moved away from a place that had a like a really thriving comic shop and I just wasn't in touch anymore I think and those 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 a lot of European books really got me excited about what what um comics could be again so so that sort of started off that process working in that style and then you know that just opened the doors to more and more comics and just really really getting back deep into it and enjoying it again and seeing fresh art styles and and also then digging back into historic creators so you know i think um chris somney for instance was someone that i kind of discovered and and then had a big influence on on my art style as as it progressed um definitely becky clunan was just huge um the by chance and providence you know such a wonderful story and i think trying to capture some of that that energy that in the brushwork that that she achieves was something i was dead keen on um and yeah and then i started reading a lot of manga and so uh atomo's influence and heo miyazaki uh especially norska of the valley of the wind i started to find all these things kind of permeating the art and so one of the trickier things is is going back and I I can look at the face of Matilde, the main character, and I can pinpoint what I was reading at that point because, you know, you see something in that creator's artwork and you think, I would love to have a flavor of that in my artwork. And you just find little hints of it kind of creeping in. So things do evolve. But I'm, I think I'm okay with that as part of the kind of artistic process and as part of a you know, kind of learning with the book as you produce it. Um, and maybe hopefully at some point, kind of everything will start to stabilize, but I don't ever want to stop looking at an artist and thinking, wow, I would love my work to have just a, a hint of that quality and to then integrate that in, keep developing. Yeah, I, I sympathize 100% the the changes over time. So when we were in the state overnight, just very recently, um, in that hotel, so I've done um, a lot of commercial photography. So I was a professional photographer for many, many years. Um, and my work was in that hotel. So all of the the public spaces, the rooms was my artwork, but it was my artwork from 13 years ago. <laughs> So I was looking at it, and I think a lot of people go through that. They hate to see pictures of themselves. I kind of hate to see my old work on the walls because it it makes me cringe. You know, like oh, I would totally change that. And then, you know, your your kids are are can be also your most brutal critics, right? So my son was like, "Dad, is that your work?" I'm like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Oh, it's crap." And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is." So, yeah. uh, how old your son? Do you don't mind he's, me asking? 
Oh, he turned 15 last week, so. Okay, so, and quite a brutal critic. Um, I mean, like, was, it, was it constructive? Was there any guidance on where, how you might have developed from there? No, no, just, just, <laughs> just, 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 just very, very raw, you know, <laughs> but it, it's great. That's, that's the kind of relationship we have. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I have that relationship with him where he feels like he can be honest. And it's like, he also knows it's not going to hurt my feelings because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think as an artist, you, you also have to be callous to some extent, you know, criticism is important. You need to absorb it. Um, but at the same time, you can't let it dictate. Uh, otherwise, you'd just be crushed. Your confidence is destroyed. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think most people, when they give feedback, are very conscious of that. And they will kind of sandwich it in, you know, the, the, the positives they pick out. And that's definitely, you know, I've had portfolio reviews as well with folks like Shelley Bond. And um, again, like lots of that Thought Bubble. Thought Bubble's been such a great sort of hub for developing and, and learning new things. Um, but I'm always super hungry for that critique and just because i i know i know i can keep improving and i really want to keep improving so anytime you know it, you can't sometimes probably uh, in your experience you know the same but you know when you're looking at your own work you're kind of in it you're so close to it that sometimes you can't necessarily pick out the the, the simple things often that would really help to develop it and push it forward. And so getting that outside perspective is always invaluable, I think. For sure. Yeah. I made a, a very conscious decision at the beginning that I would make a separation between the two spheres of my work too. There's like the commercial work mm-hmm. and then there's the fine art that actually falls into what I consider art, which is the other stuff that I do because the commercial work is fine. I mean, they're landscape pictures. They're pretty, they go on a wall, they serve their purpose, but um, you know, you can, do anything people could use as a toilet paper and I don't care as long as I got paid. Right. Um, and then that, that separation line that I made a long time ago really helps me. Um, and it's interesting too. I mean, in people ask all the time for feedback. And so when I was teaching, because I was teaching photography for a long time, I had a partner and we do, um, photography workshops in national parks. And so we had a great relationship because he was able to take people who were much more, at the beginning level, um, just emerging, right? Mm -hmm. Technical issues, these kinds of things and overcoming those sorts of things. And then I was more of the artistic brain. And I always made sure when people were like, okay, I want feedback. I was like, okay, I want you to give me a level of of comfort that you would be comfortable with from one to five that, you know, one being, you know, pat you on the back, you know, you're doing great, keep at it, right? Five being, okay, this is brutally honest. You're actually trying to make it as an artist. Yeah. Um, and I would always use that perspective with people. And it, and it seemed to work pretty well. Yeah, definitely. Have you read the, um, the Alex Toth uh, critiques of Steve Rude's work? No. Wow. If you want to read some brutal critique, it's okay. right there. But it's awesome. It's all so, it's so on the point, you know? And I mean... I can't think of many people that know composition and the like, probably as well as Alex Toth. I mean, as far as I can tell, quite a prickly character when, um, but I don't, I don't know a lot about that, but I mean, there, yeah, you would, you would certainly be weeping if you received sort of similar feedback to that. But I I equally, I think like when you come to terms with it, there's so much you can do with it. Well, let's get into a little bit about the main characters. So, mm. Matilda and Pitt, you know, you know, were they always the the central characters in the story, or has it, has it changed over time? Or, you know, did you kind of use them as the the nucleus, if you will? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think a little while ago, I happened upon a, I guess, a formula for stories. I mean, it's not very, it's not. Uh, no chemist is going to be particularly impressed by it, but it's. Um, I I tend to find like a setting I'm interested in, and that setting could be like a, a, a the germ of a story. It could be a time period. It could be a, a place, and then marry that with like a perhaps a, a quality of my own character that I find difficult or would like to would like to understand better. And so 
I suppose I start with that that kind of quality that um, that kind of that behaviour or that that way of of living and want to see how a character coming from that same viewpoint would would experience a a given situation. Okay. So um, I suppose in some respects both characters have elements of of kind of personality traits I might find quite quite challenging. Like well, one is in terms of Matilda, she's you know she she wants to be loved, she wants to be admired, she wants to be um, in people's hearts and cherished, and you know for to be able to walk down the street and see faces brighten as she moves through it because people um, regard her favorably. But you know, you know, at the same time that kind of that shouldn't be the you know there should be a reason why people feel that way and and i suppose it's something that perhaps all creators wrestle with a little bit is you know wh- why am i why am i doing this what what um I mean, and am i doing it for the right we- reasons you know and similarly how i guess a, a lot of the time we're maybe working quite hard to project an idealized version of of who we are whether that's through sort of social media or um just the stories we tell you know what parts of our lives do we choose to share with other people and by and large we want to create a good impression because we want to be welcomed into you know the the in group we want to feel part of a, a community and so so i think this is this is the the kind of emotional side of it i may be exploring with Matilde is like um, understanding kind of what 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 lies behind that desire to be kind of cherished by a community and and really I think it's kind of like acceptance and being being loved for who you are but but you know if you don't necessarily feel that that's granted that people are just going to accept you for exactly who you are maybe you think there's something missing then then maybe you're going to be presenting yourself in a way that's larger than life and uh and is maybe not quite true to yourself or or taking you know taking actions that aren't necessarily um the right actions to garner that that positive attention from people that that actually know and care for you so that's a very long-winded way of <laughs> of saying kind of you know i i'm really interested in characters that that have something challenging that they have to kind of work through as part of the story. And, and I know that's that's nothing revolutionary. That's what all beautiful stories are built upon. But um that that to me is just as important as the the high octane moments of of action and adventure that kind of litter the story as well. Um and then I guess on the flip side, Pitt, who's who's a who's a storyteller himself, but you know, uses story as the way to express himself mm-hmm. um, and, and finds it harder to express himself directly to people around him. Um, so this has turned into a bit of a therapy session and that, that <laughs> wasn't really my, my intention, but, um, but I guess, you know, in stories, you know, the characters you write, they tend to be amplified versions of like traits. So, <laughs> sure. Um, but, but yeah, so he, he, I guess in the same way, you know, comics, you, you you might explore things about yourself and and you're, you know, some people do that very directly through diary comics and they express it very openly and in quite a raw way. And other people will kind of use stories and metaphors to explore things. And so and so that's his character. And and another area I want to explore is, you know, how do you get to that point where you have the courage to just express yourself to people directly? Yeah, well, and I'm curious about the title Gospel too, because so we have outlined, you know, here's here's the characters, right? Um, but they have to have a setting, <laughs> and it, it's set in this huge transitional period in England, mm-hmm. where the power of the church is being challenged by King Henry VIII. You know, so gospel, if I'm understanding the Old English correctly, is good news. Um, so, you know, why specifically that title, and why, for that matter, pick that time specifically? Yeah, I think gospel might be a, a derived from Godspell. Um, okay. 
uh, as part of like uh, I guess like a, a gospel, like a writing or something to a kind of like a um, you know writing to live by and that sort of thing. Um, that time, I guess, is the other half of of things that hopefully make it quite an exciting story. Insofar as it's a period of transition, a period where nothing, you know, the 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 church, which had been, I guess, governed by Rome, but mm-hmm. time immemorial, you know, there was these very simple rules that you had to live by to not only live as part of the community, but to be guaranteed guaranteed your place uh, in heaven. So then for suddenly these these kind of um, rules to be challenged, you know, um, by a, a church that was uh, led by the Reformation that started in Europe, um, you know, everything feels uncertain and everything feels uh, like it could give way beneath your feet. And I think that 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 kind of uncertainty, I don't know how you felt, but in the last few years, politically and environmentally, nothing feels quite as certain as perhaps it maybe once did. I don't know, looking back even to like the 90s or the early 2000s. And so that felt like an interesting time to explore. And I suppose what is hopefully interesting in the story is the the question is put there, you know, can Matilde and Pitt change with the times? Or are they going to be swallowed up by this massive change that's that's occurring across the country? Yeah, I want to I want to tease everybody without giving too much away here. Um, so there's a very large bore at the beginning of this story. Mm-hmm. I'll let you elaborate as you will. But after doing a little research, there was an Arthurian tie-in to a Welsh legend about a very large boar, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce because my Welsh would be a butchering of it. Um, you know, is that a, a relevant reference at all? And you, how much of this is going to be about supernatural creatures, if you will, so people can get a beat on it? Yeah, for sure. So I would say um, there was a time when I wanted it to be kind of much more dense with legend uh, or much more kind of looking at the the roots behind the legends. Um, so I would say it's not going to be like there's not going to be a lot of there are there are there are some very central supernatural elements, um, but uh, you know it's not it's not kind of like fantasy in terms of it it being kind of um, dripping with goblins and pixies right. and, and and whatever else. It's, it's kind not of Hellboy. It's not Hellboy. No, yeah. no. Um, but there's plenty of kind of unsavory characters and um, assassins and. And giants and these sorts of characters, but you know, it, it kind of focuses more, I suppose, on on how the stories around these these characters and how they might have come to be perceived as they are, rather than so it's you know how a community perceives them more so than it is them being like truly supernatural. So there's a lot going on here right? mm-hmm. <laughs> in this story. You know, big picture, you have this this monumental shift of separation of church and state narrowing the lens down a little bit you have these connections to small towns their histories you have the central characters trying to establish themselves in this rapidly changing world and discover exactly who they are you know as they get older feels like a little bit like a novel really so why pick the medium of comics and 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 how did you go about layering all this stuff kind of as a storyteller and an artist into a panel's format Wow, big, yeah. I mean big that's question. A big yeah. big question for sure. Yeah. I suppose I mean when it comes down to it, I just love comic. I just love reading um people express story visually and the the connection you can feel with the characters in, in that way and in, in the way they express themselves in their body language and and how you can kind of juxtapose images to say something completely fresh. So um yeah i mean i think i don't want to sort of suggest that it's kind of just impossibly you know dense with all these layers because at the end of it it really is just an adventure and i suppose one of my core inspirations was kind of the work of Hayao Miyazaki especially Norsuka the Valley Wind and Princess Mononoke and stories like this that 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 blend 
history that blend um, local legend, that uh, blend fantastical elements with very real elements mm-hmm. and just create a, a compelling story with characters that, you know, you can both see them for their faults, but hopefully you can love them too. Um, so I suppose that would be the kind of closest touch point, perhaps, I would say for it. Um, but in terms of how, how it all happened, you know, I've, I've kind of worked on a, a fair few sort of comics projects and comics projects in weird contexts that you would not imagine, like, uh, say, hoarding surrounding a building site and having like a comic strip running around those. And so those projects have kind of, have, have kind of punctuated my time working on gospel. I've had plenty of time to just let ideas kind of creep in and to edit out ideas and to, and to kind of refine it down to something that feels hopefully like it's got something to say, but it's not, not kind of like trying to beat you with that. You know, sure. you can kind of find what you will with it. And I was very lucky to be working with Sebastian Gurner um on as like a as as an editor on the book as well so you know he was phenomenal in terms of just taking these i these kind of big ideas and just condensing helping me condense them into something that you know hopefully is like a a, just a a good thrilling read but that has more you can dig into if you're interested to do so well, give me the the a glimpse into the glamorous background of an artist, right? So, where where did you get your your formal training, and are you a full time artist slash illustrator? Um, so I I am mostly self taught. Um, I did I went to university, but I studied archaeology, which had quite a big influence on um, gospel, especially in issue two, um, because one of the things I studied was doom paintings, which are these incredible. Uh, pre-English Reformation paintings above the chancel arch of churches that have um, Jesus sat in the center and then it's like the end of days. So everyone's rising up from their graves and they are being uh, chosen to either ascend into heaven or they're being uh, wrapped in various sort of thorny kind of bindings and dragged into hell. So probably the most famous version would be uh, the Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's mm-hmm. piece, and the the English versions are, are brilliantly cruder, much more, you know, just wonderfully kind of much more crude than the kind of the Renaissance paintings, but they are vivid with life and energy. So, so even though I didn't study art at university, uh, all that stuff has kind of infused or has just been trickling away somewhere and, and found its way into this book. Um, and then, you know, so I did a, a lot of drawing and then got into a job, uh, in marketing, which kind of just didn't give me any time for that and, mm-hmm. and was fairly grueling. And so after a while, I, I took an evening course in illustration and just to be drawing again, alongside doing life drawing classes was just, I don't know, just like a, just felt lighter when I was doing that that work and it just felt more like what I wanted to be doing. And so I then decided I was going to leave my job and do a, an MA in illustration. But there wasn't a huge amount of teaching per se on that. It was more a case of, okay, take a project and, and run with it for a year and see where you get to. Uh, and so that was where my first graphic novel came from, The Silver Darlings. And um and and ever since then I have just spent all of my time like delving into as many resources as I can to kind of learn the craft and to keep growing and developing. And, uh, you know, some of that comes from like historic how-to books, you know, the Andrew Loomis books and things like the famous artist schools, uh, famous artist school. has got these amazing PDFs of um, kind of like a, an old correspondence course that folks would send off for and, and get these awesome lessons on anatomy and how to compose a picture but then at the same time it's like resources like women write about comics um was one where there were loads of great interviews with colorists so as i was learning to color i just tap into a lot of that stuff so you know i just i just know 
that there's so much I can do to keep improving my my drawing and my my craft. And so I'm just so hungry to find that stuff and to to kind of keep learning and developing. Um, but yeah, and that's all feeding into kind of currently I work I work a couple of days a week at a, a university doing some teaching. Um, and and it's a, a fantastic comics course here in Leeds. So I'm really lucky that the stuff I'm kind of learning for my own interest, I can also then kind of hand off to students to hopefully help them develop their comics work. That's cool. Yeah, you get that immediate. And there's nothing quite like working with students to um, put fresh perspective on your own work. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm like scraping off so many great influences from, I mean, I mean, they think they're the ones doing the learning, but really I'm just kind of <laughs> just gathering all these amazing sort of references and touch points that they, they, um, they're kind of tapping into. But equally, well, I'm always... Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say like, um, you know, it just sometimes it could just be a tweet. Like, I mean, Greg Smallwood's tweet threads on on how he chooses reference um, and you know dispelling myths about how you create incredible kind of uh, realistic imagery. All that stuff is so informative. So it's just like, I just wish I could like put it into some great leather bound tome and just <laughs> click through these pages. But it's all in these disparate places. Yeah, the, if only you could synthesize and download it all, if you will. Totally. Well, I'm really curious about uh, some color choices in the book. Um, mm. I'm an aspiring colorist myself, so this is of particular interest. There's there's a lot of what I kind of describe as these uh, kind of autumnal choices. Mm. You know, mm. think pumpkins, squashes, um, you know, counterbalance with these deeper teal. They're not, they're not quite purple there's, there's a purple red tonality you know that that helps balance out the autumnal kind of color palette but it, it's not what i would have expected from you know some i wouldn't associate that specifically to that time period or anything like that so talk to me about your approach to coloring this project kind of learning coloring as as you, as you evolve through it um and yeah yeah um so i mean I wanted to create something that um, felt very vivid, especially in bits that were in in sections that were told stories. I kind of wanted wanted it to be almost richer than real life might might actually be. Um, so I think whenever I I work on color, I will tend to tend to think, okay, you know, what are what are the basic things I need to co cover in terms of um, what time of day it is, is it? What season is it? Um, uh, you know, kind of what's what's the location? Um, but then marry that with obviously, you know, what do I want to communicate emotionally with this scene? Is it is it a hot, fiery scene? Is it a moment of intense action, or is it a moment of um, cool reflection? And so, kind of making sure to try and build in that kind of emotional palette as well and combine that and so i would tend to then just look around and see okay what who else out there does that really successfully um and so kind of pull on some of those palettes and and then just start building palettes and mixing colors and there was a great um i can't quite remember um the creator but the but you know kind of how you build a palette by by kind of with transparency layering color the cut your kind of base colors maybe your base yellow your base red and your your base blue and just kind of layering them over each other until you get a much richer broader palette that all feels very coherent because it's born of the same colors um so yeah so so but it was a, a big learning process getting there and, and i think again studio ghibli was a, a huge kind of point of um focus for me and how vivid the colors are but also how naturalistic they often are so i hope yeah i hope it's it's alive and energetic um without without kind of kind of betraying the era because obviously you know back in in sort of the 16th century folks didn't have access to all of the pigments and dyes that we have now and and you and so i was kind of conscious that you know, the kind of more uh, like the lay folk, the more sort of humble folk in town, they would mostly be relying on earth pigments 
for their clothing, which would be, you know, kind of ochres and reds. Um, Rose madder was like a a color that was really frequently in there. Um, But then other characters, I just wanted to, to pop in every scene. And so, for instance, you know, Pitt's kind of um, clothing does have that kind of quite strong teal color. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, against the kind of more autumnal colors that, that that really stands out and that you can then pluck him out and and equally kind of Matilda's hair. And I never go into the, the reasons why her hair is um, this kind of green teal color. Um, the kind of idea I had was that you know, this is her trying to establish her brand as such. You know, if anyone kind of mentions her in a story, they'll say, you know, and she had a flash of of, of bright green hair or whatever as she sort of darted through the scene. And I was thinking, well, you know, perhaps there are lichen, there's lichen or something you can grind into a paste and dye your hair with. I didn't perhaps <laughs> go into the, the full details of that, but I just wanted something that would help to you help to communicate how she you know wanted her to almost to create this brand and to kind of make herself really visually recognizable in the minds of of her storytellers and and the community i think if somebody's delving that deeply into the color of hair of a particular character they're probably missing the point anyway <laughs> possibly but yeah so did you ever have that point with gospel where you thought, mm, maybe I'd be happier working with somebody else, you know, just considering this longitudinally, how long it took, you know, let's, let me share the duties here. Oh, a hundred percent. And do you know what? That's not just um, from a time saving perspective. It's because I know, especially colorists, there are people out there that will be able to do a knockout job that, and, and, and achieve things and say things in color that I just will not be able to do as someone that doesn't devote my entire time to that. So I did actually initially want to work with a colorist um, and, and reached out to a few folks and, and they were all really generous getting, getting back to me, but um, you know, it's really hard to work. It would find that like uh, alignment of schedules mm-hmm. and to get everything working together um, perfectly. Um, so yeah, it just didn't transpire that way. And so I did the the graft of kind of learning and I kind of used my other commercial comics projects to kind of, you know, put put my coloring skills to the test to sure. kind of learn it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'd be keen for your critical eye in that <laughs> case, Spira, just to get your thoughts on, on where it's working and where I could uh, develop it. No pressure, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll do that off camera some yeah sure 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 right, right, sure. yeah yeah um what has coloring been the most challenging aspect of of the project then i think so i mean uh do you do you do any of the other stages of the kind of the comic production process as well i do, do any not penciling I, or inking no no not at all i mean like it's, it's such a, a new thing for me to even try to feel like i have enough time in the day to try to break into to this and and play with this i've got a four panel that a, a good friend, actually the the co-host of this show, has done mm. that. That it, it is, he's anxiously awaiting me to actually get on that. So, um, so that that's my next project. But um, no, I mean, aside from the, the the germination that is inevitable from getting into, you start in comics journal, journalism, and I've I've been told a lot of people, you know, okay, you're eventually going to write something. It's just it's going to happen. You, you know, and it's inevitable. Um, and sure enough, you know, the, the bug finally bit after me being in denial for a long time. So we'll, we'll see <laughs> how that goes. Your life. Right. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'd love to, I'm, and I look forward to working with someone else, but I find, I find coloring the most thought intensive part of the comics process, probably just out of familiarity, I guess, because I did a lot of my work was, was kind of ink wash, watercolor, mm-hmm. and moving digitally was was a real challenge. Um, but, you know, the we've, I mean, who who doesn't start drawing from a, a dead early age? And, and you know, I just keep, kept doing it. And so working with a pencil 
on a piece of paper, I, I just love, and I just love the, the flow of a pencil over that page and seeing things emerge and equally inking just from quite early felt very natural working with a brush and just getting that lovely fluid line. And I find in terms of, you know, calming your mind down, there's nothing quite like inking because it's just quite a mechanical process, but you are also bringing a lot of flavor to the artwork. Um, so it, I find that the most relaxing part of it, even if it does kill my shoulder eventually, because I think <laughs> I can grip my brush um, like I've got a death wish. Um, but uh, but yeah, the the coloring it it's it takes me it takes me a while, and uh, I just think there's so much thinking you have to do. You know, the light sources, the mm-hmm. um, getting all those colors to work together deciding you know where do you want your your point of focus how much do you want to render uh this particular element of this particular panel there's there's a million decisions to make and there's you know multiply that by all the other decisions in comics it it, it becomes like a quite an undertaking yeah i'm i've been cheating a little bit with um or i consider it cheating at least with while i'm teaching myself and coloring and, and so part of my other background with the the entertainment industry stuff is I was a lighting designer. So I at mm. least have this um, contextual idea in my head of, okay, how lights are supposed to work with figures and stuff. But um, there are some programs uh, that I used when uh, with, with Photoshop and in conjunction with them, plugins and such um, that will help you, you know, you can put a light source and move it around if you will, ah. which I think, which is, which pretty pretty useful in terms of like okay then i need to shade this lighter and such things so. oh that's interesting so is is that um does it use kind of like ai or something to kind of almost create a model from 2dr or it's it's not a model um so you should so basically you're able to so think of in terms of like adding flares if you will so it was uh-huh. software originally designed to to add a flare, to add sun rays coming into a picture, um, and you can break them up and move them, and you know change the aspect um, of where that light is coming from. So it's kind of kind of an auto auto shading, you know, almost mm. if you will. Um, and then coming from the background, it's it's really funny because with my black and white work, you know, I get a whole lot like overwhelmingly. It's like, oh, well, this looks like you know derivative Ansel Adams, and I'm like, thank you. Right. <laughs> I'll take if, that. If if I'm pulling that off, you know, I'm doing well. But you know, when you actually get into um Ansel's zone system and zonal system, you know, it's 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 really interesting to me using those tools with learning to color. Mm-hmm. Um and because shading in photography, people just they they do not you can't even conceive of, you know, how much time I mean, maybe most people don't I don't know. Maybe they'll hit a button and it, you know, auto auto mid-tone contrasts but you know i get really in there and will you know shade contours and, and light yeah 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 dodging and burning so so that the carryover into to coloring is probably making the process longer than it needs to be frankly but mm-hmm. but you know it, it's a lot of fun and i don't have to pay my bills doing it so yeah for sure and that's a yeah a great way to experiment uh, i think i kind of always go for i I kind of we've gone for more of a cell shaded, but I guess uh, with um, hopefully, you know, kind of using some brushes that kind of blend it down and make it feel a bit softer rather than that kind of hard animation edge that, um, mm-hmm. you know, from back in the day. Um, but I like, I like wherever possible to kind of reduce down the number of decisions I have to make. So if I, if I, if I know I'm only dealing with kind of, um, you know, hopefully my, my inks are going to do the, the deepest shadows um or cast shadows and then i can rely on okay i just want an, an area of highlight and kind of mid-tones really and that means i'm making fewer decisions which makes life a lot easier yeah which which leads me to another a curiosity i had so you have like varying artistic styles in your locker so how do you go about choosing you know what works best for a specific project yeah i mean honestly i think a lot of it is just to do with what's really exciting me at the moment and what what, how do I want to work? Because you know, comics are such a um, brutally time-consuming process that mm-hmm. 
but you have to be really excited to, to be waking up and drawing. You know, you have to be looking forward to that. So, so I want to make sure that whatever I'm working on, um, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by the process and I'm excited by the outcome. So that's part of it. A lot of it is kind of just trying to feel, get a feel for the, the tone of the piece, the audience of the piece. And deciding then what's going to be the best approach and also what's going to be most efficient if I have to make edits. Because once you've kind of sloshed on a lot of watercolor, it's kind of hard to come back from that without a lot of um, fine tuning. Whereas obviously you can use your lasso tool and you can kind of, um, you can kind of uh, adapt kind of colors relatively easily. So so yeah, I mean, a lot of it is trying to understand wh what field do I want to create from this, and um, what what's going to do justice to the themes of the story and the feeling of the story. What am I going to be excited to to, to produce, and um, you know, what's what's going to help me get to the finish line ultimately? Because I think the best way to learn is just to to to, to produce work and then and then just be moving on to the next thing and learning from that previous project and, and growing with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at say the silver darlings and gospel, there's, there's quite a gulf in that, mm -hmm. that style. I mean, there was a retailer I reached out to who was really supportive of, um, really supportive of the silver darlings way back when. And they had to do a double take that it was even the same creator so I hope there's I hope there's shared DNA in the way I kind of um, am interested in you know ca how characters hold themselves and their gesture and that sort of thing. But but I also don't necessarily feel that it's important to rubber stamp your style and say you know a lot of students who speak to are really concerned with oh I need a style that's the only way I'm going to make it and my perspective personally to keep it enjoying to, to keep it enjoyable is that um you know that style is just like a frankenstein's monster of, of everything you've absorbed and enjoyed and wanted to integrate into your artwork yeah i mean i've always when working with students i've always taught people that you know art is, is naturally an evolution you know we mm -hmm. We we like to think of things in in terms of artistic movements but like the the lines of those things are really so blurry when you look at actual historical context and you know mimicry i always tell people is, is you should start there right find people whose work you love try to emulate that your own style will emerge naturally out of that but it keeps you excited you know about continuing to do whatever artistic style you know you love um, just keeps pushing you yeah totally and you know i i take kind of pleasure in in as i say looking at, at Faces of the characters and thinking, oh, oh yeah, uh, that's when I was reading um, uh, Atomo, and that's when I was reading Linnea Sturt, and and I can see the elements that are kind of infusing the artwork. Well, is is Gospels a, a mini series at this point? Mm -hmm. um, is that a piece of a larger body of work you're interested in sharing with the world, is, or, is, is, <laughs> or is there more? Right. Uh, I I think like for the time being, there's definitely scope that the characters could go onwards. Always, um, always. <laughs> uh, but I would say that you know the characters were kind of created in order to tell this story. So I you know I would be very satisfied if this is um, if this is kind of the conclusion. Well, where can people find you online? Well, uh, all over the place, I, I should hope. So my website is um, whmorris.com and there you can go and um, see for yourself kind of that, that difference in styles. I um, have my Instagram, which uh, again is, is whmorris and then um, Twitter as well, which is wh underscore morris, I think, because someone had scooped that one up. Um, it happens. Yeah, that happens. So, so yeah, and... Twitter and Instagram, I suppose, are where I'm kind of doing most of the sharing of my work and, and a lot of the kind of behind-the-scenes process stuff for gospel. Well, everybody should go to Will's website. I personally love the Falstaff illustrations. I think the watercolors there are gorgeous. 
Um, everybody should sign up for your newsletter because I think there's some some goodies in store for those that sign up. Is that correct? Oh, hey, yeah. I'm going to be, you know, just putting together sort of sketches and then offering those up as kind of like prize draws for folks on on the newsletter and that sort of things. Awesome. Yeah, the case with that. Very cool. Well, people should definitely sign up for that. Um, it's been great getting a chance to to chat with you about gospel. Um, as somebody, you know, with a bit of a background myself in, in folklore, I really enjoyed the the layered approach to the storytelling. I encourage everybody to to make sure to give gospel a try. And Will, thanks for hanging out with me today. Yeah, it's been a real joy. So thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.